You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to uh, 10 Hard Questions. We are on question number four tonight, and uh, it's been a lot of fun so far. Uh, walking through these questions. Uh, just as a reminder before we dive in, uh, much of the conversation that we have and much of the way I, I structure the answers to these questions is based upon um, Rebecca McLaughlin and her book Confronting Christianity, uh, which won Book of the Year in 2019. And um, she's really helpful and she's really helped me structure the responses. Um, so, yes, yeah, Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. Just giving a, a shout out to her because <laughs> without her, I would have a lot more work to do. Um, so let's pray and we'll dive in. Actually, I'm going to read scripture and then we'll pray. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus, this is your teaching. This is your vision. And we pray that you would speak to us tonight as we tackle this hard question. We pray that you would guide our conversation, that this just wouldn't be some academic exercise. But uh, it would clear away all that gets in between us and knowing and being known by you. So help us to lean in with our minds and with our hearts as an act of worship. We commit tonight to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so far we've uh, looked at a number of hard questions. And the good news is that the questions are just going to get harder. <laughs> uh, we started off, how can you say there's only one true faith? We explored that one. Uh, we talked about how... Um, even the idea of saying there are many roads to God is actually an exclusive understanding of faith. And we talked about Christianity and many of its claims and the relationship of these claims to history and the fact that, Jesus, that Christianity is, is rooted in a person and in a week two... Pastor Marty through the denigrate women. Last week, we explained the question, how can you take the Bible literally? And so we talked about different genres and different ways to read the Bible. Tonight's big question is, doesn't Christianity promote 
violence. So in this questions coming up. Reminder, on November 1st, we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. David Robinson from Regent College, and he's going to be tackling the question. I'm going to interview him, and the question is, does everything happen for a reason? And often you hear Christians say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason. But what do we mean by that, really? Um, what differences do our prayers make? And how does God operate in the universe? How does he operate in our lives and in the world in events that take place? These are really big questions. And so uh, we have Dr. Robinson who will be uh, helping us with that. And we'll have lots of opportunity to ask him good questions. We'll be talking about suffering. We'll be talking about hell. And then your hardest questions, the Ask Anything Night, which is uh, the last week. And I'm already getting questions. And just so you know, I'm already scared. Um, <laughs> last week, I don't know, she might be online. Or I think it was this morning or yesterday, a friend of mine, she gave me um, 15 questions. <laughs> really good questions, too. Fantastic questions. So I am so glad to see this. Because, again, we should not be afraid of hard questions. If all truth is God's truth, and if Jesus is the truth, the life, and the way, we don't need to be afraid of hard questions. Jesus can handle hard questions. Now, I may not answer them sufficiently or satisfactorily, satisfactorily but um, that is my shortcoming. Jesus' truth does not stand or fall on how well I answer these questions, but I'll give it a shot, and I might try to recruit some help, too. So, um, yeah, so keep your questions coming. We have a running list of them, and uh, Jonathan is compiling the list and sending them to me uh, as they come in. So tonight's hard question is, um, doesn't religion cause violence? Is somebody saying something? No? Okay. Doesn't religion cause violence? Now, for many people in the world, the problem with the world is religion. Wherever you find religion, you're going to find violence. I mean, that's certainly the sentiment of uh, one of uh, the 20th century's most famous philosophers, a fellow named Bertrand Russell, who said, quote, religion prevents us from removing the fundamental causes of war. Religion prevents us from teaching the ethic of scientific cooperation in place of the old force doctrines of sin and punishment. It is possible that mankind is on, will first be necessary to slay the dragon that guards the door. And this dragon is religion. Wow. Is this true? Is the dragon that's causing death and destruction in this world, is the dragon that's preventing peace from being established in this world, is this dragon religion? Well, that's a big question. So maybe if we could slay the dragon, things, bad things, violent things would no longer happen. So tonight we're going to have a frank look at the role of violence in religion. And then we're going to ask the awkward question, is violence characteristic of Christianity in particular? Okay? So before we dive in, it's fun to have a conversation. So I'm going to invite you to a conversation around your table. And here's the question that I'm going to ask you, okay? Or on, online. Here's the question. Hypothetically speaking, 
what is it about religion, not necessarily just Christianity, but what is it about religion that may cause violence? Hypothetically speaking. So you don't have to go, oh, I think Christianity is fine. No, I think Christianity is violent. No, you don't have to get, just in theory, like what, what is it about religion itself that may cause violence? Okay, so take a few minutes and talk among yourselves this, how you would answer this question, okay? Okay, everybody uh, gather in a little bit. We've had some technical issues, which doesn't affect you because you're in person. Uh, everybody online, David, uh, you guys can all see me okay? Not too much of an echo? We're okay? All right. So Mike's going to moderate the, uh, the, the chat. <laughs> so all theological questions direct towards Mike. Okay, so let me actually hear from you then. Okay. You guys can still hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we got lots of techie people here. Yeah, um, I'm not one. <laughs> but I can ask you the question hypothetically: uh, What is it about religion that may cause violence? Yes. We didn't get in a fight at our table, but we do. We <laughs> do have differences. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so you you have different. Okay, so you have differences about something that matters a lot to you, right? Because there's not differences about, you know. That's religion. Yeah, because these are issues of the heart. Okay, good. What else might cause a problem? Every religion claims exclusivity. Okay, so the, the exclusive claims of each religion, right? Yeah, very good. Yeah. Someone reads the Old Testament, they can assume that. Yes, yeah. If you read some of the Old Testament, if you read the conquest of Canaan, for example, um, uh, that, that might say, well, okay, this God is a God of violence. So no wonder Christianity causes violence. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. And so you have this interplay of, of culture with religion. And so sometimes what seems even to be a religious conflict may partially be um, a, a cultural disagreement. I mean, you can say like in the former uh, nations of Yugoslavia, that would certainly be the case. Uh, there's a lot of deep-seated animosity between people that has some relationship to religion, but it also has relationship to a whole bunch of other things. Say Ireland is the same thing, you know, Ireland, Northern Ireland, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Anything else? I think sometimes the leader, the people look at as their religious leader, and they become their god, and then they don't look like Jim Jones. Right. Right. So they've seen. Very good. So they so they've seen 
um, charismatic leaders who are associating themselves with, with particular re, uh, religions carrying out violence and then associating the religion with the violence. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I just saw something on there too. Um, yeah, yeah, re- ethnic and religious cleansing. Um, yeah. Well, I think there's there's good reason for people to think and associate religion with violence. And we're going to dive into that. But what I wanted to do uh, to, to begin with is to look at Christianity and violence. And I want to begin with Jesus' own teaching about violence. Um, that would probably be a good place. And that's why I read the uh, Sermon on the Mount at the beginning. Uh, the rejection of violence runs through Jesus' teaching. Uh, He taught his disciples, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He also taught us to not just uh, love our friends, but he says to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'll tell you, I've shared this before, but when I became a Christian, when I gave my life to Jesus in a hotel room in Shanghai, when I was living there, um, one of the first things I read in the Bible, I had never read the Bible, or one of the first things I read, I was sharing that with uh, your class the other day if you're, uh, on Sunday, um, was, the, um, was Jesus' teaching to love your enemies. And I'm like, gee, I have lots of enemies and I hate these guys. But hating them hadn't gotten me very far. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. So, but it was such a counterintuitive way of living and thinking. But you see, Jesus in his life, he, I mean, he walked the talk. Um, his teaching about nonviolence was expressed in how he lived his life. When one of his followers drew a sword, uh, when, as Jesus was being arrested, Jesus rebuked them and told them to put the sword away. When Roman soldiers mocked him, put a crown of thorns on his head, Jesus did not retaliate. When they nailed him to the cross, he prayed for their forgiveness. And you know what? The story of the early church bears witness to the, this nonviolent way of Jesus. Uh, almost every single disciple, all but one, was um, killed for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. And if you read the early stories of the church in the, in the first and second century, you'll hear stories of, of uh, Christian leaders being rounded up. And thrown into amphitheaters to be torn apart by wild animals. Um, dying violent deaths. But never fighting violence with violence. And so you could make a strong case against violence from the teachings in the life of Jesus and his early followers. But, <laughs> but how does this square with the overall story of Christian history? Uh, not that well. Not that well. In fact, whenever the question of violence comes up, a lot of people say, you know what, David, you're talking about Christianity. Christianity has always been violent. And the one example to go to first is which you'll get it from your notes. (laughs) David, what about the Crusades? Right? What about the Crusades? Uh, And usually my response is, is this. And, and it's only because I'm being cheeky. I, I usually say, well, which crusade? Mm-hmm. Or what about the crusade? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, well, what? 
Oh, you say, well, which crusade are you referring to? And usually the conversation ends because people actually don't know very much about the crusades, but they know the crusades are quite violent. And they're not wrong about that. Um, though I would say this, that uh, how the story is told about the Crusades is a little problematic. Um, and, and just because I like history and history is fun, I'm going to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh. Because this is how the story, I just, it's just one of those things that kind of bugs me a little bit because usually the crusades are brought up as you know kind of the uh the, the the trump card or the slam dunk against christianity and and again i'm not there are problems with the crusades but but this is how the story of the crusades is typically told during the crusades whenever it took place a long time ago an expansionist imperialistic christendom brutalized looted and colonized a tolerant and peaceful islam which is actually not the case. History is always a little more interesting than what people like to think. Um, the Crusades, as one historian puts it, is one of the most misunderstood events in Western history. The idea that the Crusades were an unprovoked attempt by Western Christians to force their faith on peace-loving Muslims is, for lack of a better word, nonsense. Um, in fact, you could make a case, you could make a case that the opposite was true. Uh, a historian, Robert Louis Wilkin, puts it this way. The Crusades were a Christian counteroffensive against the occupation of lands that had been Christian for centuries before the arrival of Islam. Now, just because this, you know, just, this is often a topic that comes up, I just want to unpack just for a few minutes uh, the story of the Crusades. Um, the story of the Crusades actually begins uh, around the 8th century. So the 700s, um, you should know. And, and Islam uh, had, had grown so quickly after Muhammad. It grew so quickly that it had actually occupied um, much of North Africa um, and the Holy Land. And it occupied these places not by strong words and arguments. Um, it occupied these places with the sword. And it's important to realize because it's it. Whenever um, people talk about the Crusades, it's like you know Christianity and Islam had never ever encountered each other until the Crusades, and you know Muslims were living quite contently and peacefully, and these crazy Christians came down and caused all sorts of problems. But the problem is, is that doesn't hold water. Um, most of the places where Islam spread into were Christian areas. And so there, there was an encounter before, and there's lots of conflict. Um, but there would be said that for a while, Islam allowed Christians to continue to make pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And that was a big deal, especially for Christians in Europe. Um, this Everything changes when um, Islam becomes quite influenced by the conversion of the Seljuk Turks. And the Seljuk Turks were an intolerant and brutal people. And in the year 1009, um, they abandoned tolerant practices towards Christians. And they basically said, all right, no more Christians allowed. You can't be a Christian. Um, the holy places, Christians and Jews were, were now uh, persecuted. And 
holy places were destroyed. And Jerusalem fell in 1071 to the Turks and became part of the Seljuk Empire. And so one of the issues was, is that Christians could no longer go to the Holy Land. Now in the medieval world, this is a big deal. Because to go to the Holy Land, if you could go to the Holy Land, that was one way that you could guarantee salvation. Now, kind of a wonky understanding of salvation, but in the medieval world, in Christendom, that's what they thought. And so the Crusades was a response to the Holy Land being cut off. And so what were the Crusades? There were a series of military expeditions into Muslim-controlled lands, and they lasted around 200 years. In fact, you can make a case they lasted a lot longer than that. Um, and most people, when they talk about the Crusades, they're talking about the First Crusade. And the First Crusade, which is most known, had some military success. Jerusalem was retaken, but I'll tell you, it was brutal. And it really was brutal. I've read uh, a firsthand account. There is a firsthand account by a guy, a guy named um, Pulkir of Charters, by butchering his name. Um, but it describes what happens. And um, the behavior of the crusaders in the first crusade, especially once they took Jerusalem, is horrific, even by medieval war standards. And on the way to Jerusalem, the behavior of the crusaders was brutal with all the pogroms, all these attacks against Jews along the way. And so the first crusade, the way it ends up and the slaughter that takes place in Jerusalem really is brutal, really is violent. Um, and then there's other crusades and the other one of the crusades that it's just how can I put it? It's just cuckoo banana. It's just crazy. It's a fourth crusade where the crusaders actually don't even end up in Muslim territory. They just go straight to Constantinople, which is the center of Eastern Christendom. And they sacked the city in 1204. And so if you wonder why, I don't know if you've ever wondered why, why Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, who for all intents and purposes kind of look the same, their practices are very the same, and their doctrine is quite similar. Why don't they just become one? It's because of what took place in 1204. And if you're an Eastern Orthodox person, what took place in 1204 in Constantinople took place last Thursday, not in 1204. That's how recent it is. And the only thing that stops Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox from coming together is coming together. And it goes back to this. And so there is a lot of violence. There is a lot of violence. And this really is a dark mark against Christianity. And it can, and you can make a case. My point is simply this. It's not like Christians went in there, guns a-blazing, to these you know, Muslims who were just singing songs going, hey, no, don't be violent. There's a lot of violence going on. And, there's a lot, and, and you could make a case that, that some of this you know, is, a, is a response to some of the violence that was taking place. Either way, it doesn't excuse it. There are other cases in, in history of, um, of violence being carried out in the name of Jesus. What are some other examples that you can think of? The truth and reconciliation, residential schools. Yeah, some ways, yeah. The martyrs. Sorry? The martyrs. The martyrs? Yeah, yeah. 
the Protestants and Catholics yeah, doing violence against each other. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Um, yeah. Protestants and Catholics. Yes. Yeah. The witch hunts. Yeah. Yeah. The Salem witch hunts were, were kind of the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny, we can come up with quite a few. There's a 30-year war, 1618 to 1648, where Catholics and Protestants fought against each other, against the Anabaptists, and then the Protestants and the Catholics joined four forces against the Anabaptists, and then Protestants also joined with other Protestants against Catholics, Catholics against the other Protestants. And basically, at the end of the 30-year war, 9 million people are dead. This is in the 1600s. That's a lot of people, all in the name of religion. What's that? Yeah. And you could talk about World War I and the causes of World War I, which in many ways was like a seen as a holy crusade. Uh, the 1994 Rwandan genocide um, that took place in just over a number of weeks where 800,000 people were, 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 were slaughtered. And many times within churches. And, and Rwanda at the time was had one of the highest rates of professed Christians. And one of the reasons why Islam is growing so quickly in Rwanda is that Muslims are saying to Rwandans, it's like our God doesn't care about whether you're Hutu or Tutsi. So, I mean, these, these are dark stories. How much uh, commerce was involved? How much what? Commerce. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there, there is money involved and there's all sorts of there's all sorts of stuff going on. And with the sacking of Constantinople, one of the main reasons was not religion, but was money. They were supposed to get paid a certain amount of money. That's good, yeah. And, and scripture teaches us this. Yeah, the love of money is the root of all, all kinds of evil. Right? Yeah. Now, these events, again, they, they are a black mark against Christianity. And one of the reasons why they stand out, and we read about these and we get mad, we're like, whoa, this is terrible, is because they, they really bump up against Christian ethical thinking, right? Because we hear these stories and we're like, this should not be, right? You should not treat people this way. You should not exploit people. You should not be killing people. And I lost people. Is everybody gone? Mike, are you still there? Still here. Okay. Well, that's good. Don't worry about that. That's good. that's good to know. You can see me, right? We're all still here. Okay, that's good. Hang in there. Because if you leave now, it's like, okay, Christianity is violent, and that's all I'm going to get. <laughs> so hang in there. No, here's the thing, because we hear these stories and we get upset, right? We get upset and we say, this should not be. Now, I can't go into this, but this reaction that people ought to be treated with dignity, that people should not be indiscriminately slaughtered, and that, that um, lives should be preserved, and that justice should be upheld, and that individual rights should be preserved. Just as an aside, all those ideas, ideals are rooted in a Christian worldview. So you just got to hold on to that. 
the outrage that you may feel against the kind of injustice is actually predicated upon a Christian understanding of ethics. I'm just saying that it's just kind of an interesting thing that you don't want to just skip over that because that is actually comes out of a Christian worldview. Our, our, our outrage saying this is not how we should treat a fellow human being is actually a Christian ethic. Okay, in conclusion, not to the whole thing, but about so far. People say there's something aggressive and violent about Christianity and, okay, maybe Islam as well. And as religions go, maybe what we ought to do is look eastward. Look to the Eastern religions. They seem to be more tranquil than these other religions. Maybe, maybe Buddhism is the way to go. I mean, Buddhism. We've all seen Kung Fu Panda. It's all about inner peace, <laughs> right? Um, mindfulness. And isn't Buddhism all about peace? Well, history. Unfortunately, the historical record doesn't play that out. If you study anything about Buddhism, in particular, in a uh, uh, nation formerly known as Burma, uh, Myanmar, um, there's been this ongoing, incredible, horrific, brutal persecution against Muslims by Buddhists. In fact, a New York Times op-ed article in 2018 was titled, Why Are We Surprised When Buddhists Are Violent? Because there's lots of examples of Buddhist violence throughout history, whether it be in Sri Lanka in 1983 uh, to 2009, violence in modern Thailand, even groups that are associated with the Dalai Lama are, 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 are known for uh, that form of Buddhism is, is quite violent. Now, I'm not saying that Buddhists, um, that Buddhism is essentially or particularly violent producing. There's a lot of peaceful um, a lot of peaceful uh, Buddhists, for sure. But the point is, is that Buddhism has a share of violence. So let's look somewhere else. What about Hinduism? Well, unfortunately, Hinduism doesn't fare that well in terms of their treatment of Muslims, their treatment of Christians, and animists in the 20th century alone. It has quite a bit of violence towards them. So that doesn't really work. If you study Japanese Shintoism, uh, there's no shortage of violence there. If you've ever read the book, or I guess seen the movie, Silence, the Martin Scorsese film, Silence, uh, describes that. Silence, yeah, it's quite a powerful movie. And so we could talk for the rest of our time describing how violent the dragons of religion have been throughout the ages. But my point is simply this, every religion seems to have enough blood on their hands. Even Jews, who have been disproportionately affected by violence throughout history, have, have carried out their own share of violence in Israeli-Palestinian conflicts. So what do we do with all this? Maybe Bertrand Russell is right. Maybe the dragons of religion have caused significant violence. Maybe we need to go back to the great philosopher John Lennon and imagine and imagine what it would be like for there to be no more religion, right? John Lennon had it right. Well, let's imagine that. Let's imagine a world without religion. And, and that's what a guy in the 19th century imagined, a fellow named Karl Marx, 
who envisioned long before John Lennon or even the other Lennon from Russia. Um, what a religious world. I thought that was quite clever. <laughs> Just in my mind. What a religionless world could look like. Marx, Karl Marx, he saw, um, Karl Marx saw the failures of Christianity and insisted that religion was simply a tool to keep the masses from recognizing the injustices embedded in the economic system. So what is Marx, right? The famous line, he says, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for the real happiness. If you want a life of freedom and justice, get rid of religion. So Mark says it's that simple. So, how did Marx's dream work out? Not great. Not great. Soviet Union. Low estimates. 61 million people killed. 61 million people dead in the Soviet Union. In, um, in China, in China, um, at least 45 million. At least 45 million. Over 20 million in the Great Leap Forward and at least 25 million in the Cultural Revolution. I had students of mine whose parents were killed during the Cultural Revolution in China. Add to that 2 million in the killing fields in Cambodia. Countless dead in North Korea. We'll never know. Um, how many killed in, in, in Vietnam? And many of the nations in Africa and South America. So how did this vision play out? Well, not very well. In fact, you can say that more people have died violently under communist regimes in the 20th century than have died violently all put together in the previous 20 centuries. So political science, scientist R.J. Rummel concludes, of all religions, secular or otherwise, that of Marxism has by far the bloodiest, being by far the bloodiest. Marxism has meant bloody terrorism, deadly purges, lethal prison camps, and murderous forced labor, fatal deportations, man-made famines, extrajudicial executions, and fraudulent show trials, outright mass murder and genocide. So Rebecca McLaughlin, she concludes, the slaughters of communism suggest that sometimes at least slaying the dragon of religion can unleash a more terrible beast. Now, are you with me so far? One of the areas where it gets a little tricky is um, Hitler and Nazism. And there are people who would say, well, look at Hitler and look at the rise of the Nazis. Is that not an example of just how brutal Christianity can be? And a lot of people talk about religion and violence and the Holocaust. And because this, the Holocaust was carried out in a country 
that have been majority Christian for centuries. And so were the evils of Nazism the stain of Christianity? Now, lots of ink has been spilt over this question. Um, one of the things I love about our church that we've done for years is um, we host the Holocaust Symposium for all grade 12 students in the Tri-Cities at our church. And we've done this for years and years and years. So all the grade 12s will come here in November, probably in a couple of weeks. And they spend all day and they often hear Holocaust survivors and they hear about the Holocaust in our sanctuary. And they all come and stay. And we make our church available. And right from the beginning, I've insisted that this should be free. So we don't charge them a penny. Because I, I just think it's, it's, it's a small way of just saying, look, we want to be, we want to, we want this story to be told. The only challenge I have is they don't tell the story well. Because they still have caricatures about what and what Hitler believed. I want to just take a few moments to talk about this because this is important. There's a lot of misunderstanding. Now, one of the things about Adolf Hitler um, is that he certainly invoked Christian language to support his cause, to support his rise to power. Absolutely. He declared in his mind, he says, quote, I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the almighty creator. Okay. Even in 1933, after coming to power, uh, Hitler signed an agreement between the Vatican and the German Reich, recognizing and upholding church freedoms and interests. And a lot of Christians gravitated towards Hitler because he was going to make Germany great again. He was also family-focused, the importance of the family, the importance of marriage, all those things. And a lot of Christians gravitated towards him. And, and Hitler, in many ways, he worked to harness religion and Christianity in particular. And so one of the tragic stories is the way the Lutheran clergy in particular gravitated towards Hitler. Uh, I should have brought them. Well, it probably wouldn't have worked today, but I had some, I have some interesting pictures of this. Um, but a lot of clergy, a lot of, a lot of church members and church leaders saw Hitler as a champion against godless communism that was threatening the motherland, right? So a lot of people supported it. A lot of Christians supported it. But we have to realize a couple of things, and this is absolutely important. And this is just clarifying history. This is really important. The religion that Hitler and his party supported was not Christianity. It was not Christianity. It was a form of religion that used the language of Christianity, but in its content was probably closer to neo-paganism than anything else. The end goal of the Nazis, you have to realize, the end goal was the elimination of Christianity and the destruction of the church. According to um, Balder von Schirach, head of the Hitler Youth Movement, quote, the destruction of Christianity was explicitly recognized as a purpose of the National Socialist Movement. And one of the key historians on, on this whole story of Hitler and his relationship to the churches and what he actually believed, one of the key historians is actually a guy who's from Vancouver. Um, he was a British guy, but he lived in Vancouver for ages. A guy named John Conway. 
who died a few years ago. And he wrote a book called The Nazi Persecution of the Christian Church. Powerful book. But what the Nazis endorsed was a, was a positive Christianity, it was called, which really had nothing to do with Christianity. Um, they changed the Bible to fit their ends. They rebranded Jesus as an Aryan, not a Jew. Hitler declared, I can imagine Christ as nothing other than blonde with blue, blonde hair with blue eyes. The devil, however, only with a Jewish grimace. Bibles were produced in such a way that they removed the Old Testament. And they edited the Gospels to purge Jesus' Jewishness. All reference to the missional prioritization of Israel were, was removed. The Sermon on the, on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount uh, was emptied of compassion and made militaristic. Jesus was replaced with Hitler himself. The Nazi version of the Ten Commandments read, Honor your Führer and Master. Youth were taught prayers that resembled the Lord's Prayer, but with pretty important differences. Adolf Hitler, you are our great Führer. Thy name makes the enemy tremble. Thy third right come. Thy will alone is law upon the earth. Let us hear daily thy voice and order us by thy leadership, for we will obey to the end. Even with our lives, we praise thee. Heil Hitler. Wow. So you have to realize, Nazi Germany was being built on a new religion, new ideology, that could not be further away from what Christians believe. But again, the sad part is, is that many Christians bought the lie. And, and part of the problem was that um, these writings of Martin Luther, very, very, uh, virulently anti-Jewish writings by Martin Luther from the uh, 1500s were, were discovered and, and, and produced and published and said, look, the father of our father, or the father of our motherland, um, Martin Luther, look what he has to say about the Jews. So to be a good Christian, to be a good German, means you have to be anti-Semitic. So this is where, where it comes from. But you have to be careful with this. This is where, you know, what, what Hitler was on about, his, his, his end game was to destroy the church. But in order to destroy the church, in order to get to the end game, it was, it was, it was necessary to seduce the church. And uh, Sarah Williams is a uh, historian in Vancouver. She talks about the influence of communism and fascism on the church. And she says the communists were straightforward. Stamp out the church, destroy it. Stalin said, just destroy the church. Arrest them, kill them, do whatever you can, just destroy the church. Hitler seduced the church. And I remember what Sarah Williams said. She says, Beware of seductions. Beware of seductions. In many ways, a, a, a government that just wants to stamp you out, at least you're clear. Okay, <laughs> But beware of, of government organizations that try to woo and seduce the church. Anyhow. There is a story, I mean, not everybody was seduced, right? Who, is, who are some key people that push back? Ah, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, yeah. Uh, Martin Niemöller is another guy. Yeah. Well, Karl Barth, he was in Switzerland. And yeah, Bonhoeffer, yeah. 
And uh, the stories of Bonhoeffer and that were really powerful in, in their in their resistance in the confessing church movement because they wouldn't buy into this idea that Hitler was was Lord. They said, "There's only one Lord, and it's Jesus. It's not you, Hitler." And, uh, and you know, as, as you know, most of them were rounded up and, and, and arrested and killed. Um, the problem is, is that we read about Bonhoeffer, and, and these are great, powerful stories, but in reality, they're just a minority. The majority kind of go along. That's, that's, I think that's a real warning to us. Now, one last thing, and this is going to connect with, with, with continue with our, with our topic, is what, was, what influenced Hitler's thinking? And this is, there's a lot of ink spilled on this one. But one of the most influential guys who really influenced Hitler, philosophers, is a guy named, who, you know? Yeah, you're reading it. Yeah, Friedrich Nietzsche. Yeah, Friedrich Nietzsche. He's, he's huge. Now, Nietzsche, again, it's, it's, he has a complex philosophy. Um, but Nietzsche, he observed that, you know what? Here's the problem. He's the one who coined the, the phrase, God is dead. That's what he's known for. But what Nietzsche said, he says, you know what? He looked at the late 19th century. He says, you know what? God is dead. There is no God. Because a lot of philosophies were floating around that was basically challenging the existence of God. And said, God is dead. He's not around. But here's the problem. God is dead, but his stupid ethics and influences upon society are still lingering. And what we need to do if we want to be truly is be, be bold and say, look, if God is dead, let's live out clearly the implications and the consequences of this. If God is dead, let's get rid of any hangover of Christianity in our world and start from scratch. Okay? Let's just just wipe everything out. And so in many ways, Nietzsche was brave in the sense, all right, if you guys, if God is dead, you need to be brave enough to face the consequences. If God is dead, then there is no goodness. There is no things that are right and what are true and what are beautiful. Instead, we need to make them up. We need to impose them upon a society. And he, he envisioned that one day someone would come along who was like an Uberman, a Superman, who would just come in and establish reality, establish good, what, what they said was good, what they said was right, and establish this upon society. Because if you just have a vacuum, you need a strong person to come in and get make everything right. Clean up the mess. Yes, that's right. Well, <laughs> the point is that Nietzsche's his ideas are alive and well today. Yes, um, they are. They, they really are. And this idea that, that um, we need to remove any leftover influences of Christian thinking upon society, get rid of that, cancel that, tear it down. Is still around today, yes. Um, but here's the thing: for our context, for for Hitler, um, he 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 was deeply uh, influenced by Nietzsche, and he held on to the thinking by pointing out that morality had to be rebuilt in Germany, but based on new thinking. That Hitler would take on the role of Superman. Now, just as a geeky side note, 
You know one movie that is really influenced by Nietzsche? Or a series of movies that is really influenced by Nietzsche? And if you understand this teaching, you'll see that now if you watch these movies again. They star the great, great actor, Keanu Reeves. Yes, Pete, well done. The Matrix, yeah. Have you ever watched The Matrix? Yeah? Okay, watch The Matrix now with this idea because Neo Anderson, who's Keanu Reeves, Neo Anderson means new son of man, comes on the scene and all of society is asleep. They're all, they don't realize the matrix is, is, is not real. And so Neo Anderson is going to force them to be awake. He's going to come in and force the world to wake up to the reality, even if it costs them their lives. The two guys, you were two guys now. Yeah. Anyhow, the people who made the movie, um, strongly influenced by Nietzsche. Yeah. And it's so funny because when the matrix came out, all these Christians were like, there's so many Christian themes in the matrix. It's like, you know, Neil Anderson, you son of man, the Trinity, the girl's name Trinity, God's trying. And some people who knew these guys who made the movies are like, yeah, don't go there. And sure enough, once you get to the matrix part two, it's like, okay, now it's getting awkward. <laughs> Cause yeah. Anyhow, that's just an aside. So, one last thing. Some people would argue that one of the ways forward to deal with the violence that we see in religion and all that is why don't we just work towards making every country democratic? If we could become just good democracies, then we can fight against the violence of tyrants, religious, communists, or fascists. What we need is a fair, just democratic society and we'll be okay. And there is something good about having a democratic society. Absolutely. But again, just as a geeky aside, the whole idea of democracy, individual rights, freedom um, is rooted in a Christian worldview. It's uh, Christianity. There's an intimate connection between Christianity and liberal democracy. Um, the idea of human equality, the dignity of the individual, the insistence that leaders serve the electorate, and the recognition of the value and the sinfulness of the human being, these are all legacies of a Christian worldview. In fact, this is interesting, that uh, there was a major study done about 10 years ago, and in this study, um, what, what was discovered was the connection between the existence of democracy in countries that were uh, influenced by Protestant missionaries. Where Protestant missionaries went in the 19th century, by and large, those nations developed forms of de democratic systems, voluntary organizations, newspapers, mass printing, mass education, and religious liberty. It's a very interesting study that really pushes back against much of what you see and hear in the news today. Anyhow, well, one of my friends, uh, a good friend of mine, did a, uh, his, um, his thesis on, uh, on Toronto. And he looked at Toronto at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, and he looked at the, the influence of, of Christianity, evangelical Christianity within society, especially within the city council, 
and he did a correlation between the influence of evangelical Christianity within all levels of government in Ontario in the late 19th century and the levels of violence in society. And the levels of violence were extremely low. It was a very interesting study that we did. But again, the university saw the results and they said, we, we can't say that. So that was a problem. So, but my point is tonight, I don't want to gloss over violence done in the name of Jesus throughout the century. There's been plenty of violence done in the name of Jesus over the centuries. We have the Crusades. We have the German clergy supporting Hitler. We have massacres of Rwandans and churches. We have the so-called Christians. We have all sorts of examples. So the better question we need to ask is why, why, why do we fail to live up to Jesus' teaching? Well, I think there's a number of reasons that we can look at. One, we can't assume that everyone who identifies as a Christian is actually a Christian. Now, I have studied the Crusades, and I do know a lot of these guys who were going on these Crusades with the cross on their, had no real devotion to Jesus. I know, like, I I know some of their backgrounds. Um, Some were, some for sure thought they were doing this in Jesus' name, and some were not. Some were there to make a quick buck. Some of them were were, uh, trying to establish trade routes. Some of them were there just for the adventure. Some of them went there to get out of debt because if they went on the crusade and they survived, they came home, they never had to pay taxes. That was a pretty good deal. So, yeah, there's lots of reasons. Um, And, you know... Where, when, when Christianity, when, when being a Christian is a ticket to power, you're going to find a lot of people wanting to become Christians. When I teach uh, church history one, one of the things I point out is that after the emperor Constantine became sort of kind of a Christian in 313 AD, all of a sudden you're in a Roman empire where it's advent to your advantage to be a Christian. And so it's not surprising you have a number of bishops, leaders in the church, who don't even know how to spell Jesus. They're all pagan, but they know. They know. It's like, hey, this isn't so. I can do quite well in life if I follow this. What's his name again? Jesus. Yes, sorry. Jesus. Yes, I've always loved Jesus. And, And so you have all these leaders in the church that came out of the woodworks that were all pagans, but saying, yeah, no, I'm a Christian because they knew it was politically to their advantage to be a Christian or to identify as a Christian. So you have to recognize that. Secondly, the Bible teaches us to expect moral failure from Christians. We're not naturally good. And education is no guarantee that you'll be nonviolent. One of the most educated nations in the world in the 1940s was Germany. And so the Bible teaches us that our hearts are prone to evil, that we veer towards selfishness, like a car with a wonky steering system. The other thing is this. McLaughlin, she makes, she makes this point. She says, in the West, at this time, our selfishness 
is not served by violence. Meaning, if I'm violent, if I do violence against you, most likely I'll end up in prison, right? So there's no advantage to me doing violence against you. I'll I'll end up in prison. But what would happen if we lived in a country where if you did do violence or if you ordered violence against somebody, it was beneficial and you would not get into trouble? Now, we'd all like to say, well, I still wouldn't do it, but our hearts are deceitful. So what if it was an advantage to do violence against someone? What if it was an advantage to order violence against somebody? You're not going to get into trouble. In fact, it's going to help you out. It's going to make you richer, more powerful, give you a better home, whatever it happens to be. Well, when you're in that kind of context, who knows how you would behave? And so part of the way forward is recognizing, I think, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so the deepest problem we face is the issue of the heart. Christianity holds, as C.S. Lewis puts it in, in his Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan says, he says, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. That is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. And the Christian view is that every human being has dignity and value because we're made in the image of God. Amen? Christian view is every human being's heart is bent towards rebellion. And as Christians, we hold those things together. We don't say it's a combination. We don't say we're just animals. No. We don't say, oh, we're, we're naturally good. We're born good and we're like angels. No. We don't say we're somewhere in the middle. The Christian worldview is say we are of dignity and value. And we are bent towards rebellion. And we hold these things together. We hold them in tension. And I think it's a pretty accurate view. You'd be hard-pressed to find a better view of humanity than the Christian one. Secondly, notice what image stands at the center of our faith. An image of tremendous violence. The cross. The brutal, violent, unjust state-sponsored arrest, torture, and murder of an innocent victim. And get this, Christians believe that this was carried out by God. This execution was carried out by God. And so unsurprisingly, the cross has been likened to divine child abuse, or, or people say Christianity glorifies violence. But here's the thing, the opposite is true. Violence is the use of power by the strong to hurt the weak. But the cross, on the cross, the strongest in the universe, the most powerful man who ever walked this planet, submitted to the most brutal death ever died. Why? To save the powerless. So in the end, Christianity does not glorify violence. It humiliates violence. Because the cross reminds us that the deepest problem that humanity faces is not a lack of democracy or a lack of education 
But the deepest problem humanity faces is sin. And the resurrection of the most powerful man who ever lived gives us hope that sin will not have the final word and that evil will not triumph. And Christians for centuries have allowed this truth to transform their hearts. I'll tell you, that's, that was the idea. It was the truth of the resurrection and the truth of, of caring for the weak and caring for the vulnerable that led to the establishment in the fourth century of these things called hospitals. And since then, over 90% of all the hospitals built in the world were built by Christians. It's, it's this idea that motivated Martin Luther King to bring justice and change through nonviolence means. The uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Nicholas Kristof, he once wrote, go to the front lines at home or abroad in battles against hunger, malaria, prison, rape, should say rape, obstetric um, um, fistula, human trafficking or genocide. And some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians or conservative Catholics, similar in many ways, who truly live their faith. So does Christianity cause violence? Well, it can. But millions of Christians, because of the love and the service of Jesus, dedicate their life to love and service. It provides a vision for the food pantry. It's the reason why we have a team down in Mexico right now in Ensenada, and led by Pastor Brass. It's, it's, it's a fertilizer for hospitals, for democracy, for human rights. And if you think the world would be less violent without Christianity, I'm not sure you're right. I think Christianity offers the best way not only to think about violence, but also how to respond to it and offers a way through to peace and reconciliation. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.